Welcome to another episode of Ryan Annoys People, a podcast that I um that I am, of course, the namesake behind, uh, the namesake of. And on today's episode, we're switching over from baseball to the world of jazz. I'm talking with Lynn Ariel, who is going to be performing here in New Orleans this weekend at Snug Harbor on Saturday. And she also has an album to promote, which is called The Lights Are Always On. She is my guest on today's episode of the podcast. Miss Ariel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm I'm doing I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Um, I'm doing great. Opening day was today for baseball. Uh, my my Cardinals. I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan. We won today over the uh, over the Pirates. Uh, Albert Pujols made his uh, return to the uh, to the Gateway City and everything. So I'm excited. You know, opening day is such a big deal. In New Orleans, in not only not in New Orleans, but in in, in St. Louis, uh, it's such a, a big day. It's like a it's a holiday. Um, and here in New Orleans, there's a bar that I go to called Forty Five Shop, and I know the people in there. Uh, my friend Debbie, she loves this. She's a diehard Boston Boston Red Sox fan. She lives for opening day. It's like Christmas to her. You know, she loves the game of baseball, and oh. uh, and it's amazing. It's amazing to see, you know, to to see where uh, we were a couple of years ago, where there weren't base where they had baseball games, but you had to do it with no fans. Like they uh, at the stadium at Bush Stadium, Yadier Molina, one of the greatest catchers in baseball history, he got his two thousand hits. In an empty stadium, yeah. like yeah. you look at how things were a couple of years ago, and you look at where they are at the way they are now, it's basically like night and day in so many words. So that being said, we're gonna go and get jump into this interview. And the first and foremost thing is. Um, your life story. Uh, how did you get involved in music? Uh, who were some of your influences growing up? Sure. Um, uh, well, I started playing by ear on a toy piano when I was like three or four years old. We had a little plastic piano at home and I heard songs on the radio and I started to play them by ear. So my natural inclination was like to just to, to improvise and make up little songs and to play by ear. But there wasn't any jazz in the house I grew up in at all, and so they took me to my parents took me to a classical teacher, and um, you know I studied classical music for many years, uh, and I got a master's in classical music, and then when I was around 25, I was walking down the street, and I heard that sometimes you hear a little voice in your head, you know, you don't know if it's a sane voice or an insane one, and we don't know <laughs> which is which sometimes, and. Uh, it, you know, I heard, you should study jazz. This literally happened. It was just like a little voice. And I did not know that jazz was improvised music. I did not know that we play the melody first and after that we make up new melodies over the same chords. So, you know, it's like, it's spontaneous. Uh, after, after thousands of hours of practice, you know, of course. And so when I was around 25, I switched from classical music to jazz. 
and haven't turned back since. Um, I was originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I moved to New York and lived there 15 years and uh, 14 years, sorry, and um, uh, started a group and started recording and started playing a lot in Europe. And I've been doing that ever since. And now I have my 16th CD as a leader uh, that is coming out uh, tomorrow is a release date and it's called The Lights Are Always On. When you, uh, you, you know, in terms of, Mil you grew up, I believe you, from, uh, if I'm correct, you did, you grew up in Milwaukee, right? Correct. What was the jazz scene like? I mean, what was like the music scene like in terms of like classical music? Well, I don't, I don't really know because I didn't go to many concerts. You know, um, I think I may have been to a couple. I was just a kid and just going to, for piano lessons and going to school, you know. So um, I think Milwaukee has and had a rich musical heritage. A lot of great musicians came out of Milwaukee. Al Jarreau came out of Milwaukee. Um, you know, the, and, and there are many others. Um, so, uh, but I didn't know anything about that. If I'm not mistaken, I think he went to Rufus King High School. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I can't really answer that question, but um, uh, when I started playing jazz when I was 25, um, I started playing around in different clubs and I formed my own group and kind of learned by doing as well as I, I was studying intensively with a teacher there. And then when I moved to New York, I continued to do that and started working in the clubs and networking with people and um, then put a group together. Um, so that's kind of a little bit about my history. A lot of times when we think of, you know, uh, leaders in terms of jazz music, you know, we all, you know, yes, jazz is a little bit more progressive. I would say some people are very progressive thinking in the world of jazz. But when we think of women-led groups, it's always like the singer, it's the singer. And, you know, we never think of them, as, we never think of, uh, when we think of women having their own groups, it's like the woman is the, is the singer. We never think of them as the leader. When you started your first um, group, what was like some of the challenges, like in terms of gender, like from from like, promoters and managers what would what were some of those challenges like well way back when when i when i decided gee i, I need to get bookings throughout the country for this group uh this is before computers which is hard to believe there ever was a time <laughs> and i would get on the phone i'd be on the phone like eight hours a day and i would say hi i'm Lynn ariel i'm calling from new york and um and they would say you know we'd start to talk and they would say oh you're a singer right and I said, no, I'm a, a pianist. And, um, and so that happened a lot, but actually there nowadays, there are a lot of, a lot of women leaders like Maria Schneider's big, you know, jazz orchestra. And, uh, when I was growing up, Marion McPartland was a, a very well-known woman, uh, jazz pianist, Mary Lou Williams, probably one of the greatest, uh, pianists and composers really made her mark on the entire jazz culture. Um, you know, so the, there there were a lot of role models, Joanne Brackeen, the pianist, and Jane Ira Bloom, saxophonist. And the, there's a huge list. I can't even think of how large this list is. But every time jazz is or jazz times or downbeat has women in jazz, there are constantly more and more women leaders, thankfully. 
Um, but I think many of them would tell the same story that they felt that it was very difficult, uh, you know, being taken seriously uh, or, or occasionally we would get a comment like if, if I was trying to be on a particular record label, we already have a woman group. We already have a female <laughs> on, our, on our roster, you know, um, as if we are, you know, like a different species or something like that. We're just all artists. And I'm happy to say that, uh, nowadays it's very common to see, you know, women in groups and women leading groups and they're doing it all, you know? So we've come a very long way. I think we have a long way to continue to go. Um, but um, music is, it has nothing to do with, with one's gender. Music is music. And it is, right. it's, right. a, it's an expression of our soul and our hearts and our minds. And um, so, and the reason why I ask this question is because one of my favorite musicians here in New Orleans is a lady named Robin Barnes. And she talked about how when she first started out and when she started getting bookings and stuff, that they will always be like, oh, yeah, just wear your pretty little head. So what she would do, and I remember, and if, I, I, if, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, if, I, if I'm telling this story wrong or right, hope she doesn't kill me. <laughs> um, she used to say that she would have to like pretend to be the secretary because a lot of people, I think she had a relative that was in the music business, a, a, a guy by the name of Dave Bartholomew, um, one of the true architects of the New Orleans sound, the modern day New Orleans sound. And she told this story about how she would have to emulate to be, uh, like she would have to pretend to be the secretary because a lot of people could not believe she was that dang smart. And then um, I, I thought about, you know, I'm a student of, of, of music history. A lot of people don't know that at one point in time, Whitney Houston, Phyllis Hyman, and Angela Bofield were all signed to the same, they were all signed to Arista at the same time. Mm -hmm. And eventually Phyllis Hyman and Angela Bofield got pushed off for Whitney Houston, because they did not want three women on the same label at the same time, because they felt like it was a competition and like Whitney Houston, you know, was gonna be like this powerhouse. And they felt like Phyllis Hyman and Angela Bofield were would have threatened that kind of success that Whitney Houston would later have. So you're absolutely right about all of those things because I see a lot of not just women as singers, but as instrumentalists. Uh, not you know they're playing the drums, they're playing the saxophone, they're playing piano, guitar, all of those things. And you're you're absolutely right. We have gone, we have come a long way yes. uh, in terms of women getting involved in 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 the music business, not just in jazz but just in the music general and the music business across the board. Now, we shift gears in discussing your album. First and foremost, where did the title come from? The title came from an interview I heard on TV with um, Dr. Prakash Gada, who is a physician in Tacoma, Washington. And he said, 
Um, I'm back. I, I, I left Kuwait after the invasion. He came to this country. He said, I treat COVID patients. Um, uh, please come to us. We will take care of you. Uh, I promise no one works from home. Uh, babies are being born. Bones are being set. The lights are always on. And I thought, oh my God, you know, who are these angels that have taken care of us in the most difficult, like wartime, uh, you know, conditions that are hard to even imagine. And many lost their lives. We, we don't think about that <clears throat> so much that a lot of healthcare workers got COVID and died. Um, but the inspiration came from that, but I also kind of widened it to think about the, uh, the light of humanity, of hope, that in the midst of devastation, there is so much heroism in this world and so, so much goodness. And, you know, you turn on the TV and you see horrible things every day. Now, you know, what's going on in Ukraine, it's, it's just hard to really even process it. Uh, but I wanted to, sh to shine a light on some of the many heroes. And so the, the, the tunes have titles like March On, which is for all the people who got out and marched and protested and made their voices heard. Uh, sisters, for all of my beloved sisters across the world who, who um, raise kids, lead countries, are nuclear physicists, uh, do everything. And I love them all and I respect them all. And um, a couple other tunes that are dedications to specific people. One is called Honor and it's dedicated to Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who during the impeachment hearings spoke the truth and really uh, was the model of what a patriot and a soldier and a great American is. He spoke the truth. He was unafraid. He defended our democracy and he even lost his job because of it. Um, also, um, I have a tune dedicated to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court Justice, who was a champion of, of the rights of all human beings. Uh, that's called the Notorious RBG. And uh, the last dedication to a person was um, is dedicated to John Lewis, and it's called Walk in My Shoes. Uh, when he was asked about change in America, he said, if you don't think things have changed over the last how many years, he said, walk in my shoes. And he was um, a, a titan, you know, a hero um, that was arrested at least 40 times just for, for, for speaking his mind, which every American has the right to do. And then I have a, a song called Sounds Like America, which is for everyone, whatever America means to them. And I tried to capture that. So those are some of the titles um, of, of the, the album. I think the thing you bring up, John, um, you um, bring up John Lewis, I felt like I lost a grandfather the day that he died. Yeah. And um, I remember they had shown him in Black Lives Matter Square. And it was like, it wasn't like with Chadwick Boseman. Chadwick Boseman was a tragedy. That was a tragedy. Because we, we didn't know what he could have become. That was yeah. the thing that blew my mind. But they had shown a photo of, Ch uh, of John Lewis 
and he was in the middle of Black Lives Matter Square. And I remember saying to somebody, you want to know, you want to know what a superhero is? That's a superhero. That was what Black Panther was. You know, imagine telling somebody, telling this little boy named John Lewis in 1950 that there would have been a Black president, that there would have been a Black superhero like the Black Panther. Imagine telling him that a young, a little Black boy could be president in 1950. Yeah. And I always get so fighting mad at some of the youngsters that don't know their history. And they say, well, nothing is, you know, they, they always say, well, nothing is from fundamentally changed or any of those things. And I say, let me explain this to you, okay? You don't know what it's like to go to a school where there's, where it says colored only or whites only. I don't know anything about that. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about um, sitting on the back of the bus, of a bus, you know? And, and I think the problem is you have a bunch of idiots that don't know their that don't know their history, and they feel like that, you know they feel like they are sitting in this moment unabated. And I'm like, all you need to do is talk to your elders. Yes. And I think that's what some of these people, some of these young kids, have a, a a huge disrespect for. They have a huge disrespect for their elders because you're sitting on the on the shoulders of what they did. It's not like being progressive, and I, I hate to get on my soapbox, but being progressive is not a zero-sum, all-or-nothing thing. It's a thing that it, it takes bites and bites of an apple. So bites and bites of an apple. And then as soon as you keep getting more and more bites off the apple, the more you see progress. Progress is not always an all or nothing thing. And a lot of people don't realize that. And it's sad to say that. It's sad. It's like people talked about, well, I'm not voting because I didn't get everything I wanted. That's like a kid at Christmas yep. that says, I I'm not getting anything I want. I, I didn't get everything I want. So you know what? This was the worst Christmas ever. There are people who died for the right to vote. In, 19, in 1946, and I'll say this, and, and we'll move on, and we'll, we'll move on uh, and, and talk about influences, among other things. In 1946, Hines County, Mississippi, I think, had 120 African Americans registered to vote. In order to get, in order to vote as an African American Mississippi, you had to either you had to, some some people in some places there was a poll tax, or you had to memorize parts of the state constitution. You had to count how many beans. If you had to get the correct count of beans in a in a uh, in a in a uh, in a canister, like how many beans are in a canister, or how many jelly beans are in a canister you had to do any of those if you didn't do any of those things you couldn't vote you couldn't 
Okay. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. People need to understand. Like, people need to understand their history. They need to learn their history. Because, yes, things do suck. But I would take this year and even last year over what we dealt with two years ago in yeah. a heartbeat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry for getting on that soapbox, but it's it, it's it. But I had to say it because I feel like a lot of the people that are coming up these these kids they don't know their history. They don't they don't they don't learn they don't know their history. They get fed misinformation and they run with it. Yeah, no, that's not a soapbox. You're speaking from the heart, and I'm right there with you. I, um, with what has gone on in this country, I, you know, I don't know how people go on sometimes. I don't know, um, and yet when life or circumstances bring us to our knees, we just, we just get up and we keep going. And yet um, what people have gone through is just beyond, there are no words, just beyond and beyond tragic. Um, and it's, you know, feeling that and, and, and experiencing that, um, and somehow maintaining a positive, some kind of a positive attitude to, to live our lives is, it's just, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot, especially now with what we've seen over the last few years that I just, the amount of tragedy and um, it's, uh, what, what, what I want to do in my music somehow, if I can, is have it be even a tiny little bit uplifting that we all have something in common. We all share the same DNA, DNA. We all are living on this planet together. And my God, you know, with all the insanity, I, I as a musician want to focus on that which is hopeful and that which is beautiful and that those things that inspire me. Um, because that's what you know that's what i hope music does for people you're absolutely right because i think when you look like i think for me music was something that got me through 2020 especially i i did i remember i was doing a, a three-hour love song show that's why i do i host a love song show on sundays and i can't tell you how many times just listening to the like the playback of the of the of the um, of the morning of the show of the shows and stuff, it, it helped me, and I think it kept me sane. It, it, you know, doing it, it gave me a routine. And it kept me sane, and it's like I lost four relatives like back to back to back in March of twenty twenty, oh and then last year, yeah, like they were it was the COVID last year. My friend's fiance, or I think it was her boyfriend, he had COVID. He had his first dose of the shot. He ended up dying from COVID because he, like, he had chronic asthma and stuff. And when she told me the story, uh, Miss Ariel, Miss Ariel, she told me the story, and I remember telling her, I said you could have came to me 
and I would have found a way to help you get vaccinated. You just could have just called me here in New Orleans because yeah. New Orleans had gotten it right in terms of eligibility. And this was the son of Scotty Pippen. We're not talking about, we're not talking about um, just a, a, a son of a Joe Blow. We're talking about a son of one of the greatest to ever play basketball. And her son, I mean, his son basically died um, because the rollout in Georgia was so effed up. And another friend of mine, the rollout, the vaccine rollout was so effed up in his state that he basically drank himself to death. He was that paranoid to get out the house. And he drank himself to death. And it's something that I wrestled with for the longest, for the longest, but it was just like, there were days, and then uh, there were days, Miss Ariel, where I didn't want to get out of bed. Like, I live on the St. Charles Parade route. When they canceled parades last year, I remember calling a friend of mine and I said, I don't want to move out of bed because I don't want to go up to St. Charles and look at that street, seeing the way it is, knowing that we should be having parades and not an empty St. Charles Avenue. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm going to push and bust my behind to getting everybody vaccinated. And that's what I started doing because I'm like, what do you want to have? Do you want to have depression? Because people don't realize this area. A lot of people, it wasn't just the virus that killed people. A lot of people got depressed and couldn't handle this. Yeah. They just couldn't. Oh, the mental health profession is, you know, I, I know people in that profession and they said, it's just the level of anxiety and depression and hopelessness was like off the off the charts and they're they're swamped just trying to take care of people and and, and, and it was just like and it was just like you know people don't realize like we feed up of people and i think about what someone has said you know someone was like getting people were getting mad at folks for hanging out with each other you know in 2020 i'm like dude i can't knock anyone for doing those things because we feed off of people and one of the things that broke my heart so much Miss Ariel was I had gone to Canal Street Canal Street is like the big street and the CBD it's in the quarter and if you come when you come to New Orleans here's a side note do not eat at any place on Canal Street it smells okay it smells especially around 11 o'clock in the morning but one Sunday, I went to pick up some food. When I left this restaurant, it was a beautiful Sunday. I could hear the wind off the river. And nobody was out. There were no cars. There were no people. It was just a couple of bikes. And it completely broke me. And I remember being in tears. Because this is so terrible and so wrong. And I can't tell you how many times I called this mental health hotline hotline to, to kill to not to kill, but to, to to alleviate my anxieties 
and to calm myself down because it, it just broke my heart. And it's even worse when you don't have neighbors that are like understanding where you're coming from. That's even worse because you feel like you're on an island by yourself. Right, right. Oh my God. Yeah. I hear you. So that being said, um, when you made this album, what were some of the influences you had with this album? Well, the influences, the, the influences were the world around me and what was going on. That's what moved me. Um, I was dealing also with my own situation at home. My husband was very, very ill. It was not COVID, it was not cancer uh, for a year. Uh, and then he passed away at the end of August and I was not done with the project. And I said, I have to finish this. And my co-producer in the Netherlands said, Lynn, you know, your husband just died. Just, just, you know, we can postpone it. I said, I'm going to do everything I can to do this. And then if I can't, I can't. And I just would cry and cry and cry and I'd say, okay, back to work. Get, get it done. Get it done. You can do this. You can do this. Um, so there was quite a year and a half personally. And, and I have, um, I know so many people who have been profoundly affected by the last couple of years. Uh, they've lost loved ones. I know the feeling. Um, and I wanted that emotion and that heart to be in the music and to reach people. Um, right now for me that's where it's at you know it's not about it's not about anything in particular it's it's you know if you when you play from the heart assuming you you know have a certain skill at an instrument and with with you know playing jazz but um i i want to reach people's hearts because i think that that when we connect heart to heart that can be very healing whatever that is whatever that means you know, just to be present with people, to be as real as we know how to be. Um, and when I perform, I talk to the audience. I want them to know me and to, to feel like, you know, like well, like we know each other, like we're just hanging out. Um, this is an interchange between all of us. We're coming together, sharing time together. I treasure that. I treasure that people actually want to come and listen. And so it's my honor and my responsibility to reach out to them and to touch them. So those are the influences. <laughs> and within that, there, there are songs of different styles um, uh, within the album. Um, but um, it's the spirit that is what moves me. I think about, you know, I think, you know, the one thing, you know, I always believe that smartest people in the world, they listen. They listen to people. And I think you hit a great, you made a great point in terms of like having feedback with that audience, especially in, in the world of jazz, you have to have that. Um, that being said, when people think of jazz, they think of jazz as this boring elevator music. And we all know that's not the case, but we know that jazz is like the basis of everything that we listen to, whether it's hip hop, whether it's R&B, whether it's blues, whether it's country, 
a lot of what we listened to was rooted in what we listened to in terms of jazz music. That being said, um, jazz in this day and age, as a uh, what would you say is the overall consensus about the jazz genre in this in in in, in this day and age? Jazz represents freedom. Jazz is alive and well. And jazz is not one thing. It's many voices. And they're all different, but we, we share a similar language. When we think of different jazz artists, the difference, if, if I just think of pianists, for example, the difference between Oscar Peterson, Thelonious Monk, Herbie Hancock, Bill Evans, Keith Jarrett, um, the whole, you know, I could keep going, Chick Corea, they all spoke a common language, but each person's voice was totally unique. And that is what, to me, makes jazz so amazing. It's not one thing. It's not, it's not just, you know, it, there's so many shades and colors and nuances that make an artist who they are. Right, right, right. A ab absolutely, and and Chick Corea just joined the ancestors last ancestors last year, and uh, I know Herbie Hancock is going back on tour. I think he's going to be, I think somewhere in California sometime soon. I don't, I don't know. I don't have it. I don't have his tour schedule in front of me, but I think you're absolutely right because I think at the end of the day, you know, Oscar Peterson, his voice was unique in its own way, but he still got that same message across. Same way with uh, Bob James. Uh, Bob James, who is one of my jazz heroes, uh, he, he, he had a unique voice of his own, but his message was still, he still got his message across the same way as George Duke, uh, George Duke, Greg Karukas. Um, George Duke was a personal favorite of mine growing up because uh, that was how I got introduced to jazz. And then you also have people like um, David Sanborn, Stanley Turrentine, Miles Davis, Marcus Miller, the list goes on and on. They, it, it, they had this freedom about their music, but they all had different voices and different ways in getting that message across. Yes. Very well said. So that being uh, whoops, uh, that being said, um, tomorrow uh, Saturday you're at the Snug Harbor. Uh, is this your first time performing in New Orleans? No, I've been here many times. In fact, I was supposed to come two years ago to um, start to tour with my new CD then, which is called Chimes of Freedom, which was focusing on the immigration crisis and just the principles of democracy and what was going on with truth. You know, truth is, is not relative. <laughs> there aren't, you know, facts, there aren't alternative facts. <laughs> um, and uh, just that our democracy itself was, you know, really in peril. Um, but anyway, I was supposed to come and play at Snug Harbor. And uh, as I, I've played many times before over the years, and I called Jason and I said, uh, I think we've got a problem. This is on a Monday. And he said, there isn't any 
any COVID in New Orleans. I said, I'm, I'm very worried. You know, my husband is immunocompromised. And if I brought back COVID and it killed him, I would never, never forgive myself. I can't even take that chance. And at that point, we didn't know very much about COVID. We just knew it was really bad. There wasn't a treatment. There wasn't a vaccine. It was right at the beginning. And he, he said, okay. And, and But then I, I spoke to a friend of mine in New York and he, he said, Lynn, everything's getting canceled. You know, so uh, whether they are, you know, in different parts of the country yet, they will. And it turned out that then it was just a matter of weeks and, and New Orleans got hit really badly, you know, I believe. Um, yeah, we got bad. We got, we got hit bad. I remember the last thing, because someone had brought it up to me in February of that year. And I'm like, and, and here's the thing about me. I really don't read the newspaper here. I think the paper in this city is terrible. Um, and someone had brought it up to me because they listen to news radio all the time. I don't because it's enough. I, you know, I got, I, I got my own issues to deal with. And the moment that they started canceling like the St. Patrick's Day parade and everything, that's when I knew it was real. And the last event I remember going to was, um, an event, it was an event at the um, New Orleans Jazz, Jazz and Heritage Center, the George and Joyce Wine uh, Center on North Rampart. And we were celebrating, uh, it was a conversation with Miss Gwen Tompkins. She's a music journalist here in the city. And it was, uh, I can't think of the lady's name, but she just celebrated her 90th birthday. And it was a Q&A and everybody was in this enclosed space and it wasn't that many people there and when I got back home they canceled the Pelicans and Canes game because the game was in Sacramento and that was a Wednesday and Mm -hmm. all I remember all I remember was oh my god this is really happening and and I don't think it hit it didn't hit it didn't register in until they closed the bars on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. Two years ago. They closed them on St. Patrick's Day. All the parades were canceled. The um Super Sunday was canceled. Everything. And you know, you did the right thing in terms of not coming here to New Orleans then, knowing even though there wasn't that much information, but you did the right thing. Because you understood the the enormity of your decision in terms of if I go and I get my 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 husband sick, then I wouldn't be able to live with myself. Oh my God! Yeah, and my husband was a cancer survivor. He had one lung, and he had no cancer for the last twelve years, but he still had one lung. So in other words, if you get anything in your lung like bronchitis, you're <laughs> It could easily be fatal, and he had had many episodes of that during our marriage. But um, so he was high, high, high risk. And in the past, I'm, I'm a professor at the University of North Florida, also, and the kids were always getting sick with something. And and even if I would stay in a different room from him, he would always, you know, somehow through the air vents or whatever, he would always get what I had, whatever it was. 
and um, no matter how careful I was, and I just could not take a chance because of his own fragility. Uh, yeah, how and to think back, like how important is your career? You know, you know, as much as I wanted to come and play, not at the expense of someone's life ever. Right, and I think one of the things, and then we'll we'll uh, close out and talk about Billy Holiday. They had a party in Lake Charles, Louisiana, which is about four hours away from there. So they decided to throw an after-COVID party. After-COVID party at this club in Lake Charles, Louisiana. <laughs> this was a... Now, keep in mind, this is a state where you go outside of Orleans, Paris, it's a different world. New Orleans is... We're just latched on to the state. So they threw this party. And I remember thinking to myself, these are the same people that's going to be mad because they can't go to an LSU football game or they can't go to a Saints game. And I'm like, COVID isn't over. It's not over still. We're in a better place now because of vaccines and boosters. But at the same time, at the same time, what is you can do a party whenever it's okay. You don't have to do a party just because we in we were in like phase two or whatever. You know, yeah. you don't have to do it that way. And it's just that I think a lot of people are just selfish. It just taught me how selfish people was. This the pandemic, that's what it did. It taught me that a lot of people are selfish. They also didn't really understand, a lot of people didn't understand um, that even if you had a quote, mild case of COVID, you could have long COVID after that. I've, I've heard interviews with people who said, yeah, I had just, it just felt like kind of a cold and it wasn't that big of a deal. But then for the, for the last year, if I walk up a flight of stairs, my heart rate goes up to 150 and I'm tired all the time and I used to exercise and I, my mind is foggy. And long COVID is is no joke. Um, so and, and also it can start out really you know mild, but I I researched like what can happen after you know we started to get information out of China. The first five days, oh yeah, not such a bad, it's not so bad. And then day six and seven, there's often a turning point for people where they realize that they're having trouble breathing. And um, there's something called happy hypoxia, which means that you have a low oxygen count, but you don't know it because you don't feel very bad and you're not out of breath. And that's why I think everybody should have an oximeter at home. It's like they're like 20 bucks on Amazon, you know, where you can check your oxygen level because if it goes under 92, you should go, you know, you should go to the hospital. But what was happening is that people didn't know that and they thought that they just didn't feel that, you know, they didn't feel great. They felt achy. And then all of a sudden, um, they couldn't breathe. And by the time they got to the ER, their oxygen was like 85 and they would die of heart attacks in the waiting room. This happened, you know, a lot because they didn't know they were hypoxic and, and because the oxygen content in their blood was so low that the heart just couldn't handle it. Um, so it's no joke and it's a very complicated disease. It's not like, you know, if you get something where they can just say, okay, we'll give you an antibiotic. It's, it, you know, you can have a whole, almost like a meltdown in your lungs called a, it's called a, I think a, a cytokine storm, which is an inflammatory response. 
and end up with permanent lung damage. In fact, somebody, the piano tuner uh, for our school uh, had double, double pneumonia and they're talking about a lung transplant, lung transplants for him because his lungs were so damaged. So this is I mean, crazy. It's crazy. Like, uh, again, you know, I'm a, I, I talked about rooting for the Cardinals. Um, Mike Shannon, the voice of the Cardinals, he nearly died of COVID. Yeah. And, 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 and he was like, he went from this normal, normal Mike Shannon to his wife running, basically doing a hundred on I-64 going to um, get him to the hospital. And he still has long, he has to do physical therapy. It was so sad to listen to him on the air. Uh, the last season he was with the Cardinals. When I listened to him call uh, Nolan Arenado's first home run in the car with the Cardinals, he just looked, he just sounded winded. He didn't sound like Mike Shannon. And I was so happy that he retired. And I wish he had just retired, um, just didn't come back last year. But I understood it. But I also felt like this disease is, is real. And I think that, if, like, we talk about misinformation. Misinformation is killing people. Oh, yeah. People. Oh yeah. It's people. It's like if you had told if you had an administration that took it seriously, just a little, we would have been in a better shape. Oh but God. when you have a, an administration that didn't believe in science, that yeah. told people to drink bleach, this is what you got. Yeah. And it was so sad to see. Um it was just sad. It's like and there were some people that I basically quit speaking to over the vaccine, over COVID, because they didn't want to go get vaccinated. One guy told me he never had it, so why should I get vaccinated? But you have uh, these bike rides for 200, 200 or 300 people. Huh. And, you know, you're, you're still doing that. And it's and it, it just, you know, people, people are just selfish. We, they just are, Miss Ariel. They, they just, really are. Oh, you please call me Lynn. I, I mean to say that. <laughs> Sorry about that. But um, you know, or or they just have bad information, and bad information is lethal. It can be, you know. And um, there's a lot of false information out there, unfortunately. Um, yeah, and people would be in the hospital begging for the vaccine and being told it's too late, you know. Uh, and they said, oh, I th we thought it was all nonsense. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely, 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 absolutely. So now we shift gears to talking about Billy Holiday and your music and how you uh, presented your new CD, uh, The Lights Are Always On. That rem it reminds me of what Billie Holiday was doing when she did songs like Strange Fruit and God Bless the Child. Uh, how much would you say that Billie Holiday influenced your music career? And how do you think she would have, what do you, do you think she would say today about the social climate? 
if she was if she was here well i i i can only guess that she would say it's tragic and um i listened a lot to billy holiday for years and um there's such power such incredible strength in her singing and in her spirit uh it's very sad that she had so much emotional pain never we never want anybody to have that and she had many struggles uh but she was a, a, just a, a giant and um her music is for 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 forever will it will her music forever will will reach people because it's that powerful Anyway, anyway, uh, Lynn, thank you so much for dropping by the podcast. Folks, the podcast will be up tomorrow morning on all podcast platforms. Make sure you buy and support her new album. The lights are always on wherever you get your music. Spotify, I believe, Apple Music. Uh, I'm sure you got some vinyl presses as well, right? Not vinyl. I, I, I'll have CDs. At, at, uh, there are CDs, and I'll have them at the at the engagement. Um, I'd, I'd like to also mention I'm going to be playing with, with Matt Booth and Brad Webb, uh, who I haven't played with before, and I know they're outstanding. I'm really looking forward to playing with them. Um, I want to tell you, you know, you are awesome, and I, I really so appreciate having this discussion with you. Uh, you know, a lot of times interviews don't go into such depth, and um, I just really want to tell you that I really appreciate you, and it's it's been great talking with you and thank you for speaking your truth and for you know putting your beautiful energy out into the world and um i just want to send you a very big big hug thank you so much thank you so much also this weekend don't forget go to snug uh, check her out at snug harbor she'll be performing on saturday and i think the show is at 8 p.m right 8 p.m 8 p.m on saturday 8 p.m. and I think there's a second show at 10, right? Correct. All right, and that'll be uh, this Saturday. Uh, Lynn Ariel, she'll be performing with uh, with some of her friends, with some uh, some great musicians here in the city of New Orleans. First show, 8 p.m. Second show, 10 p.m. at Snug Harbor on Frenchman Street, and there will be CDs at the engagement. So that being said, thank you for your time, folks. This time. And until next time, as always, we will see you down the road.